The word of God says in Exodus chapter 8 verses 20 through 32. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable into the, to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to the wilderness. I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. This is the word of the Lord. We want to entitle this episode Resisting Compromise. Resisting Compromise. Now we have quite a chunk of scripture, as you could see from what we just read, to walk through. But that's going to be really the heart of the issue, Resisting Compromise. There's a good story about this. A hunter went out. And he found a bear and aimed his rifle at the bear. And as he was about to pull the trigger, the bear in a soft, soothing voice said, uh, Isn't it better that we would uh, conversate rather than you simply shoot? Uh, what do you want? Let's negotiate the matter. So they sat down to negotiate the matter. And the, the, the hunter said, Look, uh, I want a fur coat. And the bear said, I understand. And all I want is a full stomach. And so they talked for a little while. And at the end of the conversation... The bear got up and walked away, alone. And you see, both had their um, desires met. The bear had a full stomach, and the hunter, he had a fur coat. You see, in life, uh, this is a great example of negotiating with the enemy of our soul. Satan says, let's negotiate, but there are some things that simply cannot be negotiated. We cannot compromise the church and the world. The things of God, the word of God, and what the world wants to tell us is truth. And, and so I want to look at three aspects that we see in this text 
we see a pertinence of the calamity, the calamity that takes place here. We see a purpose of the call. And finally, we see a pattern of compromise. And that pattern of compromise is really where we're going to break down and find some extremely practical application. So please listen to the end and let the Lord do what he wants to do in your life. And also, I want to let him do in my life what he wants to do. So the pertinence of the calamity well, a calamity is an event which causes great and often sudden damage or distress, like a disaster. So what is the pertinence of this calamity that is poured out on Egypt in the form of this fourth plague? Um, well, let's walk through it and let's see its pertinence. Now, notice the Lord says to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. The first thing we see in this pertinence of the calamity is a standing, a standing. You see, when God says, present yourself, um, that's interesting. It's literally, stand your ground. Go to Pharaoh and stand your ground. And where is he doing it? He's doing it at the Nile. Now, why did Pharaoh go down to the Nile? We don't know for sure. Probably it wasn't to bathe, because usually, at least from what we see in records, it's not where the Pharaohs would have bathed, but, you know, I don't know, but early in the morning, he's going down to the Nile. It would seem very possibly he was going to engage in worship. That would be a common reason. Now, we also can draw a clue. It says, as he, as he goes out to the water, say to him, um, that phrase comes from the Hebrew word mayim, which uh, means refreshment or urine or going to relieve yourself. Um, now I would suggest, this is not a bathroom break. I would suggest very much that, um, Pharaoh is going to the river for whatever reason, for a source of refreshment. Um, but notice the very place he's going for refreshment is going to be a place of sorrow. It's going to be a place, not of refuge, but a place of trouble. And why? Well, as he goes, there is Moses presenting himself. Um, and, and so we see there is a standing going on there. It's all. There's also another thing we just want to bring out at this point. Um, after God reminds Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 21, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And then it goes on to describe it further, these swarms of flies. But this word swarms is another very interesting word. It comes from the Hebrew word arob, arob, and it can mean a mortgage or to become indebted. I'm going to send swarms of flies. Um, I know that that's a weird phrasing. It was like a mortgage of flies. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to us. But I just want us to get a word picture happening here because I think this is a play on words. In other words, there is an indebtedness. There is a mortgage. There is something that Egypt needs to pay back. And it's not worship to their false deities, but it's worship to the true God. They need to let the children of Israel go and worship the true, the almighty God. And so the idea here we see is a failure to obey Uh really meant Egypt was indebted to the Lord, and the Lord was going to collect on these debts. Um, now, 
What's interesting is we have the same principle in the New Testament, do we not? When we come to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we learn the wages of sin is death. We see an indebtedness to, to, to death um, or, or to sin, which is the payment is death. Now, that's significant. Why? Because Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. Christ came to redeem us, to buy us back, what, from the grasp of sin, which brings about death. And so we see a flipped story where there is someone who's indebted, that's us, but it's not uh, just an indebtedness to God, which would be a debt we could never pay, but rather Christ redeemed us and brought us to himself. Um, sometimes we sing a song, especially it's a camp song, where it, it goes, um, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. But now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. And, and so we see this first, there's a standing that is going on, but that's certainly not where all this ends. Now, uh, I could go deeper into the whole swarms of flies. What were these flies? Were um, they cattle or dog flies? Some think so, very painful, biting flies um, that multiply quickly. Others have other guesses. We don't necessarily know, but here's what we do know. Psalm 78 verse 45 says this as a commentary to this fourth plague. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them. It devoured them. Now that's pretty strong language when we're talking about flies. Flies devouring a people. I like the description of the event from Kyle or Kiel and Delish. This is what they said. When enraged, speaking of the type of flies they figured it was, uh, they fasten themselves upon the human body, especially upon the edges of the eyelids. They not only tortured, devoured, Psalm 78, 45, the men, and disfigured them by the swelling produced by their sting, but they also killed the plants in which they deposited their eggs. The blood-sucking gadfly or dogfly was something to be abhorred and may in part have been responsible for for the great deal of blind men in the land. I understand. There is some serious speculation happening in what Kiel and Delich just said. But still, it paints a picture in our minds of the severity of the plague being poured out on Egypt. But it's not just about a standing going on. There's also a shaming that takes place. A shaming. And you know this tune by now because Every plague, we've seen it go on, and there's a shaming of the Egyptian deities. Uh, of course, there's a whole uh, slew of deities that would have been shamed in this one as well. Um, a, a few to mention. Shepra, a man with a beetle's head. He was the sun god and the creator. Watch it, their god represented by the fly. Ray, the god of the sun, earth, and sky. We see all of these uh, would be gods that were um, shamed in some way or another, but I want to take this uh, shaming and and take it back to the gospel. Remember in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it spoke, speaks of Jesus Christ. It says, He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by what? By triumphing over them in Him. He put them to open shame. And, and so we see that Christ ultimately... Um, 
did this on our behalf. Yes, here he's rescuing the children of Israel from the land of Egypt and putting their gods to shame. But what did he do for us? He put the the unseen world, he put that oppression that we were under, the bondage of sin, he put that to open shame in his death. Why? So that we, again, could be his own. He triumphed over them. Well, here God is also triumphing over them, very much so, but in a, in, in a bit of a different way, not with the cross, but rather with the plagues. And, and so we see a standing, we see a shaming happening, but then we see a separating, a separating. So the flies came, they corrupted the land. It means it was destroyed, it was marred, it was devastated. But what's separating? Well, look at verse 23. It says in verse 22, On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Verse 23, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. I'll stop there. I'll put a division between my people and your people. We already saw that the swarms of flies were not going into Goshen. They were not going where the children of Israel were. But God says, I'm going to put a division. Why is this so important? Well, this word division, it's used four times. And this is really the only time that division is the translation. In other places, redemption or redeem. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to put a redemption. I'm going to put a redemption between my people and your people. Oh, how clear the gospel is jumping out of this fourth plague. See, God would put a division, a redemption, a deliverance for his people right there. The land of Goshen would be spared. This is precisely what he has done for his eternal people. What separates us from the wrath of God? Here, the wrath of God demonstrated by the plague of flies. What separates us? What comes between us and the wrath of God? Is it not the person of Jesus Christ who redeemed us? He redeemed us from that debt that we owed. In other words, he stood where we deserve to stand. He took the shame that we deserve to, to bear. And yes, he put that separation between us and the consequences of sin, the wrath of God being poured out. It is so clear. And Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20 say, For in him the full, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. And so we see the pertinence of this calamity. The pertinence is that it points us to the gospel. And just like that day, it also pointed them to where salvation was truly found. And that is in the Lord God who puts division, division between the two. But there's more. There's also the purpose of the call. There's pertinence to the calamity and now purpose of the call. Um, be reminded why, why the children of Israel were supposed to leave the land of Egypt. Well, there were really three things. They were to sacrifice back in Exodus 3.18, um, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. They were to serve. We saw that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. Let my son go, son being Israel, let my son go that he may serve me. And then finally, to celebrate in Exodus 5.1, we see that they may hold a feast 
to me in the wilderness. And this is a pattern, by the way, to sacrifice, to serve, to celebrate. Um, same thing we saw, we didn't see, but we will see in the tabernacle. We see that when you come in the tabernacle first, there's the sacrifice, there's the altar, but then there's that place of service. There is the labor, the washing, the being prepared. But then there's also the feasting, both the feasting and the showbread, but also the feasting in the intimacy with God, entering into his presence course the same thing is true in the gospel as well we have no relationship with god we're not serving god until first we accept the sacrifice of his son jesus christ that would be religion if service came before the sacrifice but no when you've come through the blood of jesus christ you are privileged to serve to serve the one who gave all for you uh, as ct stud said if jesus christ be god and died for me then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And then what? We're celebration forever in his presence. And so I want us to be reminded the purpose. Why is God calling them to the wilderness in this chapter? Well, again, he's going to remind them or Pharaoh's going to be reminded by Moses that they are to go. They are to go sacrifice to the Lord their God. Now, a real, uh, a real, let's say, um, stick is put into the spokes of the wheel here because, um, Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go out of the land, but then they make the clear case that they're not even allowed to sacrifice these animals in the land. I mean, these animals are deities to the Egyptians, and so therefore there is an impasse happening. And this impasse is where we enter into the third final point, but where we want to spend the rest of the time, the pattern of compromise. Because here, really, we see Pharaoh's journey of compromise Pharaoh wants to get the children of Israel, and specifically Moses, to compromise what God has called them to do. Why is that so important? Because understand, if there is compromise involved, then Pharaoh is still on the throne. Pharaoh is still holding the ground. Pharaoh is, a, is negotiating at the table of the Lord the Lord God. He's equal with the Lord in some sense or another, if that is the case. In other words, God said, but Pharaoh said, but, but I'm saying, you understand, there's got to be somewhere we can meet in the middle. No, let God be true and every man a liar. And that's what we're going to see why compromise could not exist here. So what is the definition of compromise? Well, it's an agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. Now, that's not a bad thing in some circumstances. I'm a married man, and let's just say in my life there is compromise between me and my wife many times. That compromise might be something as simple as when my wife and I want to go out to eat, well, we compromise on the place. You know, she might say one place, I might say another place, and we say, eh, neither of those places, let's go kind of in between what has both those types of food there. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that type of compromise. But when it comes to God's word, we are not at the table of negotiation. When it comes to God's word, his word is truth. Not do I like it, not do I feel like obeying it. It is truth, period. And as Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 say, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Again, in Psalm 119 verse 89 says, forever, O Lord. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And so let's watch the compromise go on. Well, it starts really in verse 25 of chapter 8. 
Notice what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, go sacrifice to your God within the land. That might not sound too bad, within the land, but um, Moses makes it very clear that that's not possible for various reasons. Um, but also, it's not what the Lord had said. Um, and Moses is very accurate, by the way, when he says that, hey, this could cause problems and you know, your people might stone us because actually when the Romans took possession of Egypt, the people submitted without resistance to the Romans um, to have their lives and their properties, you know, given to a foreign nation. But get this, when a Roman soldier killed a cat in the streets of Alexandria, and you know, cats are definitely um, a figure of certain gods over there, they violently tore that soldier apart limb to limb. Another case, there was a Jewish colony in Elephantine in the Upper Nile region, which endured a massacre at the hands of the Egyptians. And why? This was back in the 5th century, by the way, because of animal sacrifice. So just understand what Moses is saying is not a hypothesis. It's not something which uh, was far-fetched. This was the case. So Moses is giving a very valid reason. But at the same time, too, uh, we see this is step one of Pharaoh's compromise. You can worship, but you got to stay here. You got to stay in the land. We'll come back to that. The second time he compromises is in verse uh, in verse 28. So what does he say? So Pharaoh said, all right, I'll let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Good. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. So now he's saying, all right, fine, you can go out, but don't go far. So in other words, uh, yeah, you don't have to stay in the land, but make sure you stay close. The third time he compromised, we're coming back to all of these, so don't think I'm moving on yet. The third time he compromises, you have to go over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 11. And obviously, we're not in this plague yet, so when we get there, we'll talk about it more. But look what he says. Um, verse 11. He says, um, well, I actually need to go back a little bit before. Let's go all the way back to um, uh, verse 8. Pharaoh says to them, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses says, we'll go with our young and our old. We'll go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks, our herds. We must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So first he said, stay in the land. Now he's saying, you can go, but not very far. And now he's saying, you can go, but only the men. Well, that too is not what the Lord asked. And so look in verse 24 of chapter 10, the fourth compromise. Here, Pharaoh calls Moses and says, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. In other words, now you all can go, but you can't take anything with you, just the people. Now, you might think all of that is like, just take the offer, take the deal. It's good. But no. It's not what the Lord had said. And so we see this journey of compromise. Satan is thrilled when God's heart is compromised in his people. Compromising truth, that's another word for disobedience. Understand, impartial, or I should say actually like this, intentional partial obedience. Intentional partial obedience is disobedience. Now, I didn't say partial obedience is disobedience because um, certainly almost, I was just almost everything I do is in a sense partial obedience because um, I see such a small piece of the puzzle or uh, the Holy Spirit's always working on us. But intentionally, when we intentionally or partially obey, we are choosing to also disobey. Uh, if a parent asks a child to pick up his toys without complaining, 
and half an hour later, the toys have just begun to be picked up, but a tantrum is unfolding. Well, we could say, yeah, in the physical dimension, sure, the toys are being picked up, but that's not what the parents asked for. That's not true obedience. There's a compromise taking place. Psalm 1 verse 1, we see this pattern of compromise, an example of it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The progression of compromise, standing and then, uh, uh, sorry, walking, standing, and sitting. And so God wants us to worship but he wants us to do it in his way. It's not the worship he's seeking as much as the worshipers and these worshipers in spirit and in what? Truth. So let's look at the levels of compromise. We saw these four ways that Pharaoh is compromising, but now let's bring it home. Let's bring it to our lives. How does this look in our life? Well, if I could encapsulate these four um, compromises, um, I would call them first a compromise of love, then we have a compromise of lukewarmness, a compromise of loved ones, and finally a compromise of lifestyle. And this is going to be very clear. I don't think there's any stretching going on here. First, a compromise of love. He says, stay in the land in chapter 8, verse 25. This compromise of love. You can follow God, but stay in the same world as you did before. Yeah, sure. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Sure. Embrace the gospel. But no holiness, no separation. Just be where you were before and do what you did before. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Ephesians 5, 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. As followers of Jesus Christ, are we compromising our love for the Lord by our lackadaisical attitude, by our desire to just keep living as we did before? See, You've left your first love, said to the church in Ephesus. Repent and do the first works. Well, what is this compromise of love? Well, I think the compromise of love is our unwillingness to be holy, our unwillingness to separate ourselves unto the Lord. We also see in uh, chapter 8, verse 28, yeah, you can go, but just don't go very far away. This is what I would call the compromise of lukewarmness. Sure, come out from the world. You can be a little different because you're a Christian now. Go for it. But still watch what the world watches. Still fill your mind with the same music. Still dress the same way. Still attract people to your body instead of to your God. Uh, pursue the same goals. Invest in the same things. No problem. Sure, attend a church. You can even go to a small group if you really want to. Give a little to the poor. Occasionally tell someone about Jesus. Do it. But just don't go very far away. Don't be extreme. You don't want to be one of those extremists for Jesus. And so we have a compromise of lukewarmness, a little of the world, a little of the gospel. Just don't go very far away. A compromise of love, a compromise of lukewarmness. But then we have a compromise of loved ones. See, in chapter 10, verse 11, Pharaoh says, fine, you can go, but not your little ones. Not your little ones. Uh, you know, practically speaking, this is, uh, don't go and make disciples. Don't go and make this a fine. You can follow Jesus. And if you really want to be extreme, go fine. Be extreme. <laughs> you can be an extremist. That's great. That's you. Don't draw other people into this. Don't bring your kids into this. Don't force them to believe. Obviously, that's a misunderstanding of the gospel because there's no forcing anyone to believe. There's an invitation into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but there's no compulsion. Rather, it's a pleasure 
for those who know the Lord. But it starts at home with our little ones. We're called in Proverbs 22, 6 to train up a child in the way they should go, in the way he should go. And when he is old, he'll not depart from it. See, this is not just about correcting our kids and disciplining our kids. What a, what a, vast misunderstanding. When it says to train up a child in the way he should go, sure, I want my kids to be, whatever, well-behaved, and and, and I want them to be kind and, and loving to others, but that's not, I don't think that's what it's saying when it says train up a child in the way they should go. I want to train my children to be lethal warriors opposing the enemy of souls. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but What I want my kids to be is on the enemy's hit list. I've got two daughters. I want them to so radiate and shine the light of Christ to emit his glorious presence. I'm not training my daughters to meander through life trying to be good. No, we want to sacrifice, serve, and celebrate our God. I want to train up my children that they have a purpose in life and there's a purpose for their death. I want to train up my children that only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. I'm not going without my little ones. Yes, I'm going, but my little ones are coming too. You see, they want a compromise of loved ones, friends following Jesus is a call to make disciples. You don't follow Jesus and not make disciples. Why? Because that's exactly what he called us to do. Therefore, to not make disciples is intentional disobedience. Oh, I hear so often too when it comes to uh, these little ones. Oh, they're too young to grasp this stuff. Um, Or they have a ball game. They have a recital. They have friends. Too much homeworks. And slowly, you know what ends up happening? We do go without our kids. We, we let them get sucked into the pleasures of the world. And here we are thinking that we are somehow accommodating our children. We're being kind to our children. What, being kind to our children by pushing them away from the very source of life? I, I know a family recently where their kids were distressed. And they, they, they said, our parents have no boundaries for us. No boundaries. They want those boundaries. Why? Because they need direction in life. And I'm not saying I don't need direction in life. I certainly need direction in life. And praise God for the one who gives me direction so I don't have to lean on my own understanding. Are we missional as families? Are we actively pursuing the glory of Christ in our home? Actively. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for your home? How would you answer that if we were face-to-face and not with a screen or just audio waves between us? Now, I'm not talking about just having like family devotions or praying before a meal. I'm asking, how is your family life actively pursuing being a threat to the enemy's will in this world? Friends, it goes beyond this. You see, your little ones, they're not just your physical offspring. I'm talking about the lives that you impact spiritually. What did John say to his disciples when writing his first epistle? In 1 John 2, 1, he says, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He doesn't stop there. In 1 John 2.12, he says little children. 2.28, little children. 3.7, little children. 3.18, little children. 4.4, little children. 5.21, little children. The point is, there's spiritual offspring that we are to walk alongside as we go. Sacrifice, serve, and celebrate. But there's one final thing, and that's in chapter 10, verse 24, where Pharaoh says, yeah, they can go. Your little ones can go. 
but only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. And I would say this is a compromise of lifestyle. Say, okay, fine. If you really have to be extreme, go be extreme. If you really have to disciple other people and bring them along for the ride, then do it. But, but, at least do it while you're still pursuing wealth, provisions, extravagance, the way the world lives. See, I, I'm sure there, there was no clearer way for Jesus Christ to say what he said than what he said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, a compromise of lifestyle. It's very easy and it's very subtle to look the part, to be uh, pursuing Christ, to have others go along with you, but to still choose to embrace that lifestyle of the world. Maybe you're not living in the world and in the muck and sin per se of the world, but you're allowing that lifestyle of the world to still be compromised. Jesus makes it abundantly clear Following him is not a part-time occupation. It's absolutely, uh, it's absolute, and it's a daily surrender, as Luke 9.23 says, right? If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So I want to ask you, where do you find yourself in this journey of compromise, the compromise of love, lukewarmness, loved ones, or even lifestyle? Don't be discouraged by conviction. Get excited. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. He convicts so that you may be changed. The enemy seeks to condemn for your destruction. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. Where do you find yourself in the journey of compromise? Many people interpret delays um, or reprieve and escape from troubles as a sign that they're evil wasn't so bad after all. That's what Pharaoh's going to do. There's going to be a reprieve. There's going to be a delay, and they're going to go back to their life. He's going to go back to his life, and I don't know about forget about it, but he's going to go on. You know what Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 says? Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Friends, please don't delay. Don't delay in repenting of compromise. Don't delay in turning wholeheartedly to the truth, the truth of God's word. Truth is not about what we bring to the table. Truth is. Truth is the Lord. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. There's some serious warnings for those that choose to ignore it. Um, we see in Hebrews 10, 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. See, friends, that sacrifice, the only sacrifice that will save you is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, there's no other sacrifice to save you. But it goes on to say a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Are you saved? Are you saved from the wrath of God? Is there that division, that redemption between you and God's wrath? Well, there's only one way to have it, and that's through the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ, who so loved you, 
gave his life for you, conquered the grave, and says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But our time is up. So I encourage you, please go check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org for more resources. And please share it with others who might be blessed or, or, or use it to, um, to, to, to walk through the scriptures with friends in discipleship. But remember, this has been Into Your Bible. And our prayer for you is that you would be one who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.